Hello, hello everyone. Uh, welcome back to the Levity Zone. Apologies again for not getting you another podcast out this summer, but we were hit with a fire evacuation notice around August 19th or 20th, and we had to quickly decamp from the property and head for an RV campground where we were for 10 days, and then we bounced around with friends living in their basements. And finally, about three and a half weeks later, into September, we came back. And that was Catherine and me and the whole community back to Ancient Oaks, which is totally intact, apart from ash and leaves and very, very frightening sight of burned redwood needles everywhere that really reported in the violence of this fire, which was stopped by heroic crews just a mile from here at the uh, junction of Highway 9 and Boulder Creek, where everybody involved, uh, almost a, a thousand firefighters, uh, prevented this monster CZU complex fire from crossing Highway 9. Catherine and I took a, a drive recently out into Big Basin, where the fire really came down as an inferno, destroying the historic Big Basin State Park Lodge and burning and melting homes, melting metal structures everywhere, appliances, fire that would skip along the ground and shoot up uh, redwood trees in a line and explode the canopies. Stuff never seen before here. Never seen. Some of the redwoods which burnt are, you know, 2,500 years old. Those survived, those great old ones, as they've survived many a fire, but many did not. So the myth of our asbestos forest that's fireproof is gone. It all comes down to heat. The temperatures here in Boulder Creek in August peaked at uh, almost 122 degrees. And on the farm, I, I bet it was about 120, 121 degrees here at the Gandalf house. And so it's that plus this hot brush and then the lightning siege which came in from a hurricane crawling up the coast from Baja, big, big boiling clouds full of energy hitting the Ben Lomond Mountain on August 16th and just letting go thousands of bolts to the ground, which lit all these fires. You know, we were here sleeping in the Gandalf house, and this lightning siege began, and then a pitter-patter of a bit of rain, and we thought we were kind of out of the woods, literally, and we're still in the woods. And it all took us one big fire to start, six miles away, six miles on the coast, and it just kept blowing embers and lighting ridge after ridge. A very terrifying experience, um, in some ways a liberating experience, in that you just kind of give up all your attachments. And as you're leaving, we actually had already left, uh, just because of the terrible smoke and air quality, we were already at a campground uh, RV park up on the coast and we were driving down when we realized that there was another fire and there was going to be an evacuation so we just stayed away and Catherine's son Shane was the last to pull out uh, just as these burning leaves were coming down he got the evacuation order so it's a lot it's it's a, a lot has happened we are so grateful to still be here we have some brush clearing to do and some real thinking, a real hardening of um, whether or not 
we can be here long term. I think we still can, but it's really all to the grace of wind direction. You know, all this time when the CZU complex was expanding and burning and burning over a thousand homes, I was just tracking wind direction because that's really the determining factor. Uh, you get a spot fire and that whole tree goes up and distributes embers if there's wind and the fire just jumps. And there's no reason why it couldn't come into the Bear Creek Valley in some future time. There have been fires here. So it's just a reality of of life in our time. So that's my fire report. But I want to bring you next is a couple of things. One is we held a levity zone in September, the end of September, just a week ago. I called it, uh, is there a silver lining in an orange cloud? And it's discussions about climate change and climate shock. You know, what is the silver lining in this boiling orange cloud and orange uh, smoke that has been covering our state up to Oregon and beyond for a month? And you'll hear that discussion with the Levity Salon members who come. And you can join one of these Levity Salons. I, I generally announce them in my Patreon for the patrons first, and that's just at patreon.com slash Bruce Dahmer. And it's a way to reach that community. If you want to have more contact with me, other than listening to these podcasts, you can join the Patreon at the levels you see. And we have salons, and I'm starting to write a book. I've just submitted a book proposal to a major publisher, and the Patreon patrons are supporting that. I'll be doing a lot of writing for the patrons, and just basically building community. There's, I think it's almost 70 of us in there now, so... If you want to sort of get involved in some of the projects and some of my earliest thoughts on things and some new writing coming and life on the farm here, uh, join up at, at the level that you can you can afford. It's really helping to power my creative life. And I, I feel the love and support of the community as it's growing around this work. And with that, before I, I start the uh, Levity Salon number nine, lucky number nine for me, um, I want to bring you something that I'm about to undertake, which is a 30-day journey, a journey away from responsibility and heaviness and the little one inside that's the worrier. So converting the worrier to the warrior, perhaps, is what it is. And basically taking 30 days to be nowhere and do nothing. And this is sort of tough in our world. We're, we're expected to be places and do things. Now with COVID, we don't have places to go as much. Uh, a lot of things have been canceled. Conferences have moved online for me. And I've started to become kind of the wizard behind the gate, uh, the wizard on the hill here at Ancient Oaks. I'm adjusting to a new life. And you'll see in the cover photo for this podcast a photo that was taken by my new love, Catherine Lucas, where she's kind of been sculpting me a little bit. My beard is longer. She loves to do my hair. Uh, she's fed me a much better diet, uh, recovering from serious burnout that really hit me this, this uh, February. And I have a love in my life, and you can see it in my eyes. You can also see the redding of my skin as I age. 
as I'm approaching 58 in January, uh, you can see uh, the kind of changes, the graying of hair, the changing of the shape of the face, these kind of changes that really signify coming into elderhood, you know, at age 57, 58. So from kind of kidhood that we try to hold on to, or kind of the fresh-faced middle-aged people, uh, we become elders and people start telling us we're an elder. We may as well look in the mirror and, and, and actually own that. This transference into a new realm, you know, I call myself sometimes a realm bender or realm explorer, is a 30-day journey that I'm going to take where I let go the mental. I let go the doer that is based on worry and the spinning thought mind. And this is a, a practice. This is like practicing to do, you know, the hurdles in a, in a running race. You have to get those muscles up to be able to jump those hurdles. And you can't really jump the first one very easily. You, you miss the first one and then you manage to jump a small one. And so to jump the hurdle of mental overdrive or of mental CPU cycling, taking all the energy, it's a process of gradually letting down the mental, which I do through breath work yoga and breath work and pranayama and singing to let the cycling little one that has a list in its poke to do for that day let it down let it let it go back to sleep and then you start the day differently so that's a kind of thing that I'll be doing in the next uh, 30 days is these daily long practices to come out of mental and you know leaving the phone off or leaving the laptop closed uh, going into nature and hiking, going into entheospace, going into medicine journeys, uh, napping, how about that? Music, creative things, moving the body, all the things that give us that freshness after a long camping trip or going to Burning Man or some long vacation, we come back and we're we're changed because we haven't been in the doing task mode for a period of time, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks to try to do that at home because we're staying at home and at the same time there's another quest that I have which is to deeply dive into what I call the field and you've probably heard this many times now here on the levity zone this proposal that I have this prediction that there's a probabilistic uh, net uh, or grid that we surf all the time. We surf it with our minds, our intention, our movements, and it opens up valleys of probability or waves of probability for us to slide down and projects us in different directions. And that it is getting more sophisticated with our attentions and our interconnections and all this memory load, and all these objects to play with, the field is getting better at its job. And sometimes I've called it a god for geeks, like an operating system. It's not embodied as an entity. It doesn't pass judgment. It just is a tool. And this field, perhaps, wound into being from the very origins of life, the protocell cycle that we're now seeing is possible, the crowded polymers in the protocell, the crowded protocells in the progenote, and the cycling through wet, dry, and moist, can lift us into a form of evolution before life, the ratchet that gets you to life. 
And within that, memory arises. Memory, networking, and probability shaping. I call it actually PIM for Probability Interconnection Memory, PIM. And that this PIM cycle circulates around and around and around in relationship to other cycles, and it generates the living world, and beyond that, everything else, consciousness, intelligence, cultural artifacts, technology, spiritual experiences, everything comes out of this substrate of this PIM, which is primarily shaping probability, raising a potential gradient four billion years tall that we tap into because we're so improbable. More on that later, but this is a inquiry for the next month. It's, in a sense, it's a little bit of science, really, because it's probing into this ether or this, this uh, entity in some ways that has really guided my life since I was eight or nine, ten years old. I've really felt it there all that time. So with that, that's what I'm up to. I'm going to be filing regular reports on the Levity Salon, on the uh, Patreon uh, of this mission or this inquiry, so that you can look at them there. And uh, I'll just get going on this, this mission. So you're the first to hear about it, dear podcast listeners. And uh, with that, we'll now uh, switch over to the Levity Salon 9 and the discussions of this silver lining in an orange cloud. I want to thank Aaron Tane for editing this down for me. He's always does such a superb job. And also that we've identified that what is going on is a pattern break. And you'll hear more about that in the discussions. And the pattern break changes your routine like I'm about to do. I'm about to pattern break out of daily cycle of doing and break into a new a new reality. The whole world is entering into multiple overlapping pattern breaks. And I think that this is the driver of our evolution and it may be the field at work saying, okay, these dudes have got to change from their high metabolic cycles, they're too much doing activity too much consuming, too much travel. We're going to pattern break this thing, and we're doing it with a pandemic, we're doing it with fires, we're going to do it with climate shocks, uh, and this thing is just happening. And if you could call it Gaia, you could call it divine intervention, or the field, or the probabilistic thing is just steering towards survival, steering the human organism, the collective human animal that may be emerging pseudopod for pseudopod, pulling itself forward through the shadow toward light. It's been a long time. Uh, well, actually, it was end of July that we did this last, and that was on the eve of the Mars 2020 launch, and so much has happened since. And we have actually a, a, a special person, I don't know if she's been on the podcast before, Beverly Dobell, who's my actual aunt from up in uh, the Victoria area. For many of you, I was born in Victoria, BC, uh, 1962, seems like uh, eons ago. And I was adopted uh, by Beverly's uh, sister and my biological father adopted me out uh, at birth uh, in the hospital there, Royal Jubilee Hospital. And I only met uh, all of them, all of my biological family back uh, in the early to mid-90s. 
So Beverly and I are new, newly acquainted, actually, over the last 20, 20 plus years. So it's very special to have you here. One of the things that came up in today and has come up in our community, amazingly, uh, the fire chief, of her name is Mark Brunton. He became like the most seen person in Santa Cruz and San Mateo counties for the last month. So he's the man in the red Cal Fire hat. He's from the foothills of the Nevada City area, and he was a fire chief there. And he became the voice of the CZU complex fire every night. Everyone watched him in his reports. And we contacted again for first time in a long time, an official who we all listened carefully to, respected what he had to say, didn't call names or do anything nasty in the chat channel. And if something happened, everyone said, shut up. We need to pay attention. This is, this is reality, folks. And for a brief moment, uh, everyone pretty much came to ground in this community around Mark Brunton and everybody else who were, who were helping to save our communities. It was refreshing. It was both terrifying and traumatizing, uh, unnerving, unhealthy, but we got to see what leadership was. So you went from poor Boulder Creek Fire Department, them sleeping on the floors, having no resources as this thing broke out after these lightning strikes of the 16th of August, this lightning siege, it was called. And these guys are just struggling. And a friend of a friend who's working in FEMA and a FEMA task force over the hill just said, hey, we're going to go and help you. They self-organized. They drove all the trucks over and they uh, organized the fire station. They asked, you know, our fire chief, can we take over? And he said, absolutely. <laughs> we're out of answers here. And these guys self-organized and built a, a beautiful system uh, and saved the town of Boulder Creek and all the other towns, saved lives, made the decisions early on what to do. We saw leadership. We saw extreme leadership uh, and organization and respectful treatment of people, all those things that we know is in uh, this country and we know is in humanity. One of the things that's come out but one of the other things that Mark Brunton, so later in when they were about 60% contained and we had we were just about to what called repopulate this area. It had come out of the red zone. It was in the yellow zone. Mark Brunton came on. He said, let me tell you something. In the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, we uh, do, we have a religion called defensible space. Neighbors help and monitor other neighbors to make sure they've cleared their, la their land, defensible space around their houses. And you might think of, uh, might think of doing this here because most of the 1,000 houses that we lost had very poor defensible space. They were surrounded by brush. They were in the matrix of the forest. And frankly, we're being taught by Mother Nature here in California that we can't do this anymore, that we can't build into the matrix of the forest, that we can't uh, not pay attention to the long history of fire in the West Coast. And then he, he gave us some really interesting clues. He said, if you look at the forests that we're fighting and, and losing in, they're very small trees. Sometimes in my world in British Columbia, we'll call them pecker poles. They're really super skinny trees that just sort of fill in when you, when you log and nobody does any proper replanting. You get these super dense ponderosa and fir forests and, that even deer can't get through. And those are unnatural. So he was saying that these kinds of underbrush that we're seeing and these tiny trees and everything, if you went back to California, 150, 175 years ago, when native peoples were managing the forests actively, and when the forests had adapted to fire, they'd been adapted to fire for 
millions of years. What you saw in those forests, and there's very few of the, that type of remaining uh, ecosystem left, is large specimen trees, 300-year-old oak trees with big canopies, a green, permanently green uh, grasses, not these dried out European grasses, big trees separated widely. You can see this at Quail Hollow State Park here in the Santa Cruz Mountains. They've actually restored an area to look like historical California oak ecosystems. And when the fires came through, and sometimes they were lit by uh, the native peoples to revivify the landscape, they came through, they generally didn't take the trees, because the trees, like redwoods, the oaks were fire adapted and they were large. And there wasn't brush right up into their canopy. So they would just burn through the meadowlands and these areas, and it would cause a rejuvenation ability for ash to provide phosphorus to the soils and things like that. And this was happening continuously. There were fires. What Mark Brunton said is, we may want to think of looking at the long term of all our forest lands here on the West Coast and anywhere else and study how they are actually adapted to fire and how we should be living amongst them or next to them. And we need to really do this. The alternative is we lose all these communities. There's nothing we can do about this. We have to come into balance. We have to let the forest teach us how it has dealt with climate change. And, you know, and through all this, it was just so nice to be held in the great hands of competent people. They were the voices. And so it is possible to exit this sort of madness that we see on media channels and social media and in our political government and see that there is there are solid people who are solutionist oriented people in this world. Looking north to Canada, I was just on a podcast uh, for a conference in Vancouver coming up. Canada, I think, has had its last COVID death 30 days ago. New Zealand had a small outbreak but hasn't had any cases uh, since until this outbreak. Discipline, uh, countries with discipline that are managing this well. And what we're gonna learn, just as we learned from the wildfires, we're gonna learn from all of this in the COVID epidemic and perhaps one that's more uh, deadly in the next round, um, who are effective leaders for us and who are not. And we're not gonna put up with it anymore. We're going to ask for effective leadership because if we don't, it's an existential risk to our communities, to our children, uh, to everything. In the United States, just because this is the way this country operates, the United States really isn't a country in the way that Canada is. The United States is a patchwork of emergent interests and phenomena that push the state systems, regional things. Uh, it's so large, the population is so large, uh, has a diverse history. It's a huge economy. Its economy faces in different directions. Its central government is actually weak and getting weaker all the time. Local interests prevail often. So the United States is a patchwork. It doesn't work as a, as a single unit anymore. If it ever did, it perhaps did in periods of its history. So the United States, I call it the great laboratory rat experiment of humanity. United States deregulated mortgage borrowing. Look what happened there. United States goes into these uh, inadvisable foreign conflicts and again and again and again, it fails. Uh, and yet it experiments with, you know, stem cell research, uh, gene sequencing, 
space exploration. You know, we just sent a new vehicle to Mars. So it does everything. It, it kind of does everything good, bad, and ugly. It's the experiment everybody watches. And the world's going to watch as it deals with this non-political, non-ideological thing, the virus, which has no opinion. It has no attachments. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a mechanism. Uh, and it's the traditional mechanism of regulating human population and creating change. Because in a hundred years, well, really since the 1919 uh, Spanish flu, we have not had a pandemic on the scale of millions of deaths. But for the previous millions of years, human evolution was dominated by pandemic events, plagues, local outbreaks of things. It was, it was embedded, it was imbued into our culture, into our religious faith, into how we operated communities. Uh, we were also surrounded by natural catastrophes. Uh, we probably evolved as a single species with one type of RNA, the uh, mitochondrial RNA, from a single mother, from a single individual in South Africa 135 to 180,000 years ago because East Africa dried out and became like the Sahara, a climate shock that forced our ancestors, the first modern humans, into this very small community, perhaps in the Southern African coast. So, and then we radiated back through those deserts into Europe where there was an ice age. There were multiple ice ages. We are creatures of climate change. So we are exquisitely pre-adapted for it. And we're the most intelligent, you know, planning-wise, procreative, uh, extraordinarily able to coordinate activities, you know, species has ever existed. So we're, we're well equipped for this. On the other hand, there is an effect. So when a fire is raging through and for the people that actually were running from the fire and who are currently running from the fire in Oregon, California, Washington state, who literally are fleeing for their lives, those people, you know, more so than us, where it was a mile away and we evacuated uh, the other way, we didn't go through the fire zone. There's a deep trauma that is imbued with those sort of experiences. Uh, COVID itself has been this rolling traumatic uh, tax on the global nervous system. I, I'm very interested in checking in with you uh, how this has affected your nervous system. Has it softened you? Has it made you alert or triggered to the smallest thing? Has it expressed as a feeling of hopelessness or maybe in a feeling of calm and slowing down or maybe all of the above? I consider myself um, pretty high functioning and super resilient. I'm an entrepreneur and, you know, just have had a lot of, had to manage a lot of high stress situations in my life. And, um, uh, and I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I can like multitask, you know, to the moon. And yet this has the, the level of complexity, um, the, the inability to predict, predict what's next, the inability to plan beyond a few days, it seems often. Um, during the day, I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm gonna, we're execute, we're getting things done, we're getting things. But then at night I lie down and my heart's racing. And so there's this sort of, you know, sometimes I don't know if I'm tapped into the sort of the central nervous system of the planet that's kind of going through the same thing or if it's my own, you know, my own thing internally. Um, but there is this, this sort of 
it's a sense of whack-a-mole, right? Like complexity has gotten to this critical mass of things that are happening all at once. And um, just as you're sort of kind of getting comfortable with COVID, then comes the fires and or whatever hurricane, right? I mean, the country is in various states of turmoil right now. And then we've got the election coming up. We don't know what that means. And so I feel like my brain is changing in order to respond to this, in order to survive. Um, yesterday morning at 4.30 in the morning, I woke up to smoke, um, a very strong smell of smoke. And so I immediately went online and started checking to see if anything was you know, happening and we couldn't find anything. And, um, but I went into almost a form of PTSD. And I like, me, like resilient me, and I'm having these response, it's finally gotten to me <laughs> too much for the, for the for our current configuration with the way we release brain chemicals, right? And so I think we're all sort of getting rewired by the field in some way. Um, and we have an opportunity to really look at it and either let it turn us into, you know, nervous wrecks or make us yet more resilient. Pull up, take deep breaths, do the things we need to do to stay healthy, you know, um, continue to cultivate the, the, the relationships within our tribes, our COVID tribes, and uh, eat healthy foods and, and exercise and do all these things and stay strong and just let your brain sort of, I'm, I'm watching my brain sort of get rewired and keep connecting as much as often as I can to the field and just trying to attune to it. But it's, it's a mess right now. And um, I don't know sometimes if this is the new normal, um, or, and we're just going to have to be adjusting all the time and, um, possibly, um, things will mellow out and we'll be able to plan beyond a couple of weeks here pretty soon. Um, but with November around the corner, who knows? And we haven't even mentioned riots all over the country. I mean, it's, it's a critical mass of complexity. And so it really is, you know, we're seeing all these things emerge. And I'm, I'm hopeful on one hand for, for two things. I think a lot of interesting work's getting done. Bruce was talking this morning about how, you know, we got this quiet period. We had almost three weeks where we couldn't really do anything except for work on our individual projects. And Bruce got a ton of work done. He got a lot of great thinking done. And he was talking today how, you know, I don't know, the two thinkers you were talking about, Bruce, there were like pandemics or plagues or something that gave them an opportunity to step away and do some good thinking. So I'm hoping that as the system complexifies, that also in addition to chaos emerging, that perhaps some new voices will emerge, some leadership voices, some new ways of thinking about things. Um, I'm, I've become very enchanted with metamodernism and Thomas Bjorkman and Lynn Rachel Anderson, um, some of the Nordic Secret is a book that I've been reading and The World We Create. And I find it highly inspiring. Um, and so, you know, hopefully during this time, instead of letting the situation melt us, we can find a way to, to let it strengthen us for what's ahead, whatever that might be. You know, Bruce shared this article from The Atlantic a couple of days ago that had a prescription for how we're likely to bungle the uh, the COVID response over the next few months. And the very last bullet point was describing us living in an attitude, an atmosphere with a habituation of horror. And this sense that everything that's going on around us is bombarding us to such a degree that as Catherine is saying, you know, it, we, we normalize these unacceptable 
scenarios, um, you know, in a matter of days because, well, we have to, whether it's the political situation, whether it's emergencies, whether it's a health emergency, the frog soup is such that the frog is completely liquefied and a fine, you know, crust at the bottom of the pot that's about to melt off of the stove. And so while we can speak in circles like this about, you know, we must accept better, we must demand better leadership, we must move into a more pragmatic uh, reality, we need to start by modeling it, um, you know, for each other. Um, you know, in response to, um, oh, who, who was it? It was Melissa's point about, I, you know, the, the voting issue. Well, this is an emergency. And the emergency is that we need to get the bodies that want to destabilize institutions out of the way. Like, that's the only thing that matters right now. Once we can remove that which is degrading the institutions, we can start to deal with solving the bigger problems. Um, but for now, we've got to, you know, arrest the, um, the breakdown of these institutions. And that's going to lead us to an interesting moment where we're going to move into a period where post-traumatic growth is possible because right now everybody, everybody is experiencing some kind of trauma. And in recent years, a lot of the discussion has been around post-traumatic stress and living in kind of a place of seeing, um, you know, people in their, in, their, in their pain and seeing people in their vulnerability. And that's important. But trauma is a point of departure, not a destination. And now we're at a point where everybody is in this traumatized place. And so the only story that really matters going into 21, 23, 28, 2030 is how do we accomplish post-traumatic growth? How do we model bringing in the pragmatists from their hiding because there's no incentive to be pragmatic in an environment that's gonna burn you down? How do we bring the pragmatists into this discussion? And so it comes down to, I think one, we gotta vote. We gotta get this you know, toxic anti-institutionalist cancer out. You know, everything else is, you know, you can deal with after the fact. And then we need to start checking in and, and demanding what are going to be the solutions oriented um, paths for us. How can we model the thought leadership that is ultimately pragmatic and solutions driven? So that's where things like this, you know, are, are, are pretty important. And I, and I think Catherine's recommendations about um, the metamodernism is really significant. Um, looking for new thinking, looking for a psychology of abundance and growth and modeling that for each other and for our communities will give people the models to start demanding and asking better. Because right now, I, what Bruce and I were talking about, and then I'll close up, all weekend in Oregon, I was just watching people on social media post photographs of the world outside their window and comparing it to Blade Runner. Well, I'm sorry, that's not a very constructive thing to do. And if your only reference for this kind of a disaster is to compare it to a, a consumer product, then we're not going to get very far. So what we need to do is turn these moments of crisis into moments of understanding and pragmatic opportunity and modeling the kind of responsible, boring growth that comes about rather than looking for the chance to be the lead in our own very own dystopian reality TV show. Uh, there's a term for this type of period in history, 
called a pattern break, where you've been going along with a life that was in certain routines and patterns and dreams and expectations, and suddenly it stops. And often people who have traumatic injury describe sinking into a state where all that has been swept away and rapidly, and yet there hasn't been a moment to grasp for it, to reach for it again. It's just gone. It's like when we ran out in 20 minutes. Uh, Catherine actually asked me a few times, you know, how do you, you know, would you feel if the whole place goes up in smoke and it's happening right now? And I'm in the pattern break. So suddenly Ancient Oaks Farm and all the investment and building and objects and things like that have now become virtual. They've now lifted off out of reality and now they're a thing that's floating. And the pattern break is in control. The pattern break is this carrier wave that is just moving and you're moving with it. So the attachment to H and Oaks is just fading away. It's going off here. And then, uh, so suddenly you let go your grip. And when somebody is in traumatic injury or they've been given a diagnosis of a potentially fatal disease, they can often go into that state and f people have described it as being a kind of uh, wonderful uh, release state, like a samadhi state. Uh, a kind of a peace comes over them as they are released uh, by forces beyond their control. But what, I, what I'm suggesting is, and this is what Catherine and I have a few times, even despite uh, what you might think of as the trauma that you're carrying, the story of politics out there, the long history of Earth, concern for future, or whether you're gonna get a payment that helps you make your rent, all of those things, truthfully, what is actually going on is the air around you that you're breathing, the night or day that's outside, and all of you behind you, I'm seeing rooms, there's peace there there's an actual room with just air. There's probably some animals outside. There's crickets here going. And really in reality, if we drop into that, the, the, the here and now, let go of all the rest, except the pattern break, ask for it to lift off. This is all there is right now. The rest really is constructed continually in our mind. Like this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. It's a reification that's constantly going on to remind us when we wake up from a deep sleep, we don't even know where we are. That's a kind of a pattern break. Or some people describe as waking up as a newborn every day. They, they don't have a previous life. And perhaps this is maybe happening to us uh, more often right now. And one of the things that I've been doing, uh, which I didn't do for the previous crazy decade of the 20 teens, I'm starting to take afternoon naps. You know, of course, if you're in Spain, it's just common knowledge that this is how you get refreshed. This is how you go into your evening and everybody has a siesta and in many countries, but we don't do it in the Anglo-Saxon world. It's just like, what, you're knocking off work. You got to power all the way through and then into the evening and do so much. So I, when my body starts to get tired mentally and I'm starting to write this beautiful book proposal for a, a publisher in the UK and it's 
but it's a huge amount of mental work. I just go with my body and I lie down. And it's, it's a type of rest that is different than nighttime sleep. And I think uh, one of our former presidents used to take afternoon naps. I think that was uh, the fellow in the 40s, Truman, Harry S. Truman, used to take naps in the White House. And you come out of it 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, the sleep is so deep and different than nighttime sleep. It's actually tremendously restorative. And if you go in and you just let the world go, let all your thoughts go, everything's gone. And you go into that incredible place of peace that actually is everywhere. It's always. People talk about reaching that place of peace in a war zone with things going on around them. It's accessible. It's it's perhaps our base level is that peace. And perhaps just trying to touch that peace every few days to remind yourself that it's actually there, that that is actually the, perhaps the base. And everything else is cycling OS and stuff that's reifying and refreshing itself all the time. Um, it will change us. And that maybe that's the way to go into the post, uh, into a post-traumatic or a continuing traumatic decade that's coming. Find that peace, drop into it, check in, and realize it's it's real and it probably represents a better, uh, if you can keep that peace going, uh, certainly it will be a better reality. It'll spin a new reality for everyone around you and everything you're working on. Um, that's that's kind of what I wanted to uh, to finish with. That uh, this is possible, more possible now than in our busy, busy list following hectic years of the previous decade, perhaps. So I think we who are the thoughtful, and I include everybody here, and we also have the material means to be thoughtful, no matter how how our material well being may be threatened. We 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 actually do do have a responsibility to the people we share this nation and world with who are too frightened to be thoughtful, you know, to find a way to make it safe for them to think and feel as deeply as, as we actually have the luxury to do. Thanks, Shenzhen. And Julie, that's, that's right on. I think one of the important things as we find our way to this center is that the symbiosis that we have with our technology and with the pace of society makes it a luxury to achieve the thoughtfulness to tap into that kind of energy. And we live in a culture of antagonism and confrontation. And yeah, I mean, I see it in Portland all the time with, you know, the Trumpers driving in from out of town with their big flags and they love getting flipped off by the, the liberal folks, you know? And so those of us that are thoughtful also have an obligation to de-escalate the baseline level of antagonism and conflict and to create this sense of commonality, you know, amongst us and amongst each other. And we're not going to get there if we're trying to win arguments, you know, all the time. And we're not going to get there if, you know, we're, I'm a vegetarian. If I'm saying that, you know, eating meat's a problem to people, that that's their way of life. Like that's no way to win friends and influence people, but creating the opportunity to model, here's how you can drop into the space that Bruce is describing is going to be really important. And the thing that's really kind of paramount is what Shenzhen's doing is modeling and finding a path to service that says, you don't need to submit to the rhythms of this thing 
to be a human being. And that's going to be, you know, an extremely important crisis that we're going to have to deal with in the times to come because the structures that we've all aligned ourselves with resist this kind of rest, resist this kind of reflection. And as Bruce said to me at one visit to Ancient Oaks, the algorithms are programmed to mine our trauma. And so we're going to have to help others see a path that you can model your relationship with this technology, which after all is just a young intelligence that wants our attention. So treat it like every other young intelligence that's behaving badly and give it a time out. In honor of Terrence, um, he had this wonderful nugget, uh, shiny nugget, his greatest object that I think he attempted to bring back from the crossed over place, which he called the transcendental object at the end of time. And he felt that, I think he was big borrowing and stealing all of this from his compadres, one of them being Ralph Abraham, uh, who also uh, lives up in Bonnie Dune, whose house is still standing. Ralph is a, uh, a trooper from that era as well. Uh, I'm actually in a dialogue with Robert Sheldrake at the moment. Um, and what we're doing uh, is trying to really identify uh, a transcendental object at the end of time or out of time. And uh, what I'm working on every single day is a winding up process of looking at how protocells are forming and cycling and how evolution could kick in, the origin of evolution, then the origin of the network, then the origin of memory. This is where we're at in our work in uh, the progenote and the proposal for the progenome, this will be in this uh, book. And it teaches us that we may have discovered the very engine that cycled up through every living organism, powered by the sun's energy for the most part, rising every day in this whapping energy that is jacking up all these molecules and all this communication for 4 billion years, lifting all this complexity through stresses and through adaptation and stresses and adaptation and stresses. And here we are 4 billion years up and Rupert's morphogenetic field or the old ideas of Brahman or uh, Terence's transcendental object, something greater than us, some portal, some kind of strange attractor, which is another thing he borrowed from Ralph, uh, has the power to pull us forward. The great project that I'm working on that I'll be presenting uh, it online uh, probably a little bit later this year, some blogs, but also working with people like getting back in touch with Ken Wilbur and with Rupert and, and other thinkers, newer thinkers, uh, younger, newer thinkers, is if we've smashed biology back to its basic elements and we've blown apart the kernel of what makes living piece of living matter different from a piece of non-living matter. We pull apart those particles and then we find them, we see them and we put them back together. We learn about what the emergent phenomenon of life is. And that there's a prediction that we'll be able to make at some point that this field that Catherine was talking about is checking in with the field. It's, it's not that we're checking in with the, the grassy flat patch where our kittens are playing, but that's a field too. But this idea that there's this, there's this synchronous wave thing going on that makes improbable things happen all the time. And that if we have a strong intention and strong desire 
the field provides. It's like an operating system on its own. And you've probably heard me talk about this before. But this field is accompanied by something else, which is a nervous system called, now we have a meta-nervous system called the internet that is just mature enough to connect humans in dense ways through smartphones, wirelessly, through Zoom and all this, that when you wire together components, and this was the original model for protocell evolution into the progenome into life, when you wire things together in that dense way, it, it rises as a single organism, meta-organism really. If you do that in a forest with mycelial growth, with mushroom uh, growth, it will wire the forest into a single behavior, a meta-organism rises. And perhaps what COVID is doing and what everything is doing is forcing ourselves into more high wiring and more ways to connect in different flows. And it's waking up the meta-organism of humanity as an entity, as an animal on its own. And when meta-organisms wake up, they start making moves toward survival. They start exploring phase space toward creative potentials to survive and they carry everything with them. So the mycelial layers start making a, a redwood forest healthier. They start maintaining old stumps. They start uh, healing even non-redwood trees. The mycelial network together with the forest form what's called a consortium and pushes towards survival and health. Perhaps that is, can happen for the human animal, the human seven point something billion of us and we don't see it and we won't, we, but we will feel it and we'll see it work. So if by 2030, we can look back and say, we learned something, we evolved, we're better. The meta-organism is, is at work, as well as this huge synchronous field thing that's possibly an outcome of all the cycling systems in biology, the substrate of biology. But these are ideas that are just cooking, they're half-baked, and they're going to be uh, put into a form, which I'll share with, with you. Uh, and then I'm going to be put through some peer review. Because it may be that we can finally link the reductionist gearhead dial mechanism of how we were made with all of our numinous experience and show how the numinous experience is not denigrated by having a mechanistic source or explanation. It's empowered. Because then we realize the power of life is greater than we ever could have imagined. That it can create full spiritual experience. The spiritual experience is not coming from alien star systems, sometimes Terence would suggest. It's coming from the living world. And the living world is more remarkable than we can know, uh, perhaps, to coin uh, Whitehead. Um, so with that, perhaps that's a sampling of what we'll... Uh, potentially talk about in Levity Zone 10 because it's in my field. Um, it will get us sort of into uh, a bigger process, a bigger vision in a farther future, but maybe a, a here and now. Because I think there's ways to test this hypothesis in each of our, our own lives. And I proposed this in my 2017 SAND talk. You can see how that first came out. Uh, you can use intention to shape probability and the little marbles of action roll your way, you pick them up and it shapes the probabilistic field again. And so with that, uh, 
thank you for all for staying the whole the whole time. And is there a silver lining in an orange cloud? Well, we were in a Marscape here last week with big orange clouds above the Santa Cruz Mountains that Catherine showed me a video of basically the fire erupting around China Grade, uh, which then went down into Big Basin Park and burned 3,000-year-old redwood trees all the way up into the canopy. When you looked at this time lapse at night, she said, this is so beautiful. This is just, it's, it's, it's beautiful in its terribleness, in its power, its nature cleaning itself out. It's nature like, gosh darn it, I haven't had a fire here in over a century or there's no record of a fire, I'm, it's, it's cleaning out and for refurbishment, for renewal. And when it, when it speaks, it roars. And there's this tremendous power and there's tremendous renewal in that power, the way the forests always have. Uh, they've been adapted for this kind of fire for 70 million years, 80 million years. And uh, we just sit back in awe and say, this is the the power of nature doing its process. And if its process is to clean some of us out, reduce our numbers, reduce our, our weight and our, our population through Darwinian selection, then so be it. Then this, we will learn our lesson that we're not above the laws of, of evolution and natural selection. We're subject to them. And we will look for the benefits which are a whittling down of the size of our civilization, of waking up, growing up, um, humbling down, uh, and a prior reprioritization that will be done by this force, this power of nature, the biosphere, the Gaian system. And when it gets going in a decade or so with the storms, you know, the reason we had this lightning siege was because of hurricane breaking up. It came up down from Baja. And you could see it, it was a cyclonic system. And this is a prediction that's been made for tropical storms crossing from Texas into the Southland and up and from Mexico to deliver rains in the summer and electrical storms. This is the second one we've had in 12 years. Um, but this one was a doozy. But this is like, yeah, wow. So the, the power of hurricanes will now start shaping the West Coast. Uh, with these uh, 15,000 lightning strikes or whatever it was that terrible night. And it's just, it's an awesome demonstration of the energetics of the biosphere. And it's going to humble us and it's going to, it's going to shape us. And I think in the end, we will look back at the first two decades of the 20th cent 21st century and be in horror that we could have been so immature, so misdirected, so wasteful, uh, so busy, so creative. We created the nervous system that we're now using, but we will feel relief that we were stopped, that we were redirected into a new path. And, and that's, that's what I wanted to complete, conclude with tonight.